0: Places that we're going to look at this morning. We will be jumping back in the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for a really long time, and now we're going to continue on that path. So, Acts chapter 16 is where we're at, and then uh, hold your finger there and turn to Psalm 139 1, and we will read that passage. Uh, I want to read the passage, Psalm 139, and then uh, I'll pray, and then we'll get to work and talk a little bit about this. So my message today is in, like I said, in Acts chapter 16. It's titled, uh, The God Who Meets Us Where We're At. We'll take a look at the story of three unique characters in this passage. It's a very lengthy passage of scripture. Before we jump into that, I want to just, like I said, look at Psalm 139 as kind of a meditation, as a way of thinking about the fact that we have a God that doesn't abandon us, It doesn't forsake us, no matter what type of uh, caricature or idea or concept that you may have about God or how your understanding of God has been formed, um, our hope today would be that, be that Scripture would transform how you think about God, that it would actually be the source of data and information and revelation for you to think rightly about who God is. And at the same time, it would flush away every other false notion, false idea, about how you think about God, or ways in which we have made God in our likeness or in our image. Because at the end of the day, it's really important that we get this, that we allow God to speak for himself, and we allow his revelation to shape our understanding of him. Uh, Because by default, all we're left with is creating a God in our own image. The problem with that is a God that we create in our own image is powerless, Uh, And if you have a God that always agrees with you on every single point of idea and sociology and life and sin and things that you find troubling, and uh, if if that God always agrees with you, then it's very likely you've created a God in your own image. Does that make sense? That God cannot save you. He cannot help you because he does not exist. So let's jump in. I'm going to read Psalm 139. I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. looking at the passage of Acts chapter 16. So let's read Psalm 139. It starts off like this. It says, "O Lord, you have examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I sit or when I stand. You know my thoughts, even when I'm afar off. Verse 7 goes on and says, I could never escape from your spirit. I could never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave... You are there. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, thank you for this reminder that you are a God that truly loves us. And God, it's in Jesus that we see the the, the profound extent of that love that you have for us. God, whatever ideas or false notions or caricatures or concepts that we have about you that don't match this or match your word, God, I pray that they would be checked and challenged and removed from our understanding. And God, replace with good understanding, good truth that gives us life. God, help me to be faithful to communicate and speak forth and to unpack uh, your word. And God, anything that I say today that's not of you, that's not representative rightly, God, I pray that all those things would fall by the wayside. And those things that are from you, that they would be like seed taking root in our hearts and begin to grow and bring forth harvest of life in every one of us. And so we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Well said. All right, Acts chapter 16. We'll be picking up at verse 11. So if you guys were here a couple of weeks ago, last week was our baptism, so none of you guys were here. Uh, but if you were here two weeks ago, you would have heard Pastor Gunther share on the introduction to Acts chapter 16. So we're going to pick it up because that's kind of how we do it. So we just go through the entire books of the Bible. Right now we're in the book of Acts. So we are picking up right around verse 11. We'll be taking a look at the story of basically three Uh, really important characters in the story. So the way I want to do this, because it's a really lengthy passage, um, and there's a lot of stuff going on here, um, I want to just take this week and look specifically at three characters that are part of the text, part of the storyline. So we'll look at those three characters, and then I'll kind of think about it from a 30,000 foot view. uh, And then next week we will finish up the rest of the chapter looking at some other really important subject matter that uh, we may over, skip over this week just because we want to take a look at the importance of these characters within a storyline. So hopefully that'll make sense. The three characters that we'll take a look at, let me, can we show that, like, yeah, there you go, you're so, these are so good, uh, this little diagram. So these are three people we'll look at. Uh, one, we know her name. The other two, we have no idea who they are. They're just simply described as uh, what they do or what their role is. So we know the first person, their name is Lydia. The other one is uh, just simply identified as a slave girl. And the other guy is just identified as a soldier. So Lydia is kind of the, within the character of the story. She is spiritually open. Uh, the slave girl is without question spiritually hostile to the gospel. And the soldier is pretty much indifferent. Lydia is another, if you want to think about this from another angle, uh, Lydia is powerful. The soldier is powerful. Uh, the girl is Powerless. Or uh, Lydia, or the soldier, is the oppressor. Uh, The servant girl is the oppressed. Um, Another way to think about this, in terms of social status, there's upper class, there's Lydia. There's lower class, the slave girl. And then there's the middle class, which, which would be the soldier. Or another final way to think about this, Lydia is this wealthy business owner, very successful. She has made a name for herself. She's done a really good job. She's kind of the alpha female who's done really well for herself. The second is a slave girl. She's just your uh, a standard uh, street prostitute, and nobody even knows the name. She's forgotten, easily forgotten. If you want to think about it in a more modernized concept, this would have been a gal that would have been trafficked, um, and she lives by doing favors for her slave master. Uh, the third is a guy that we would just see as kind of like this hardened soldier. He's this guy that knows how to fight. He understands force, violence bloodshed, that's how this guy works. He's the type of guy that you're not gonna necessarily have a nice, warm-hearted conversation over a cup of decaf tea. That's not who this guy is. He understands brutality, violence, strength, in the midst, uh, and poise in the midst of uh, in, in incredibly tense and difficult circumstances. So these guys could not be more different than each other. Uh, if you wanna even think about another layer, each one of them are different nationalities. One is uh, a- adopted, the Jewish faith, though uh, she is uh, a Gentile, the slave or the soldier, I should say, is Roman. Um, and so we see even three different types of nationalities that are represented here. So this is really important as we kind of begin to look at the story of these people. So first of all, we note that there could not be greater diversity here. That's what's being described. Now, I think it's really important just by way of uh, noting that the gospel is actually going to reach all three of these categories of people. They could not be more different than each other. Um, But this is what the gospel is all about. Now, again, I realize that a lot of us, we are fed concepts and ideas and information from a modern 21st century post-Christian skepticism that tends to look at the Bible and says it's totally uh, sexist, misogynistic. It's against women. It's against you know, minorities and so on and so forth. And I would push back, and you should push back too, if you love God and you look at the scripture as an important document to, uh, as as God breathed, to realize that actually it's the exact opposite. The Bible is actually filled with a story that is radically inclusive, radically inclusive. Because if you're reading this from a first century context, one of the first things you would identify is that two people that are playing into the story of salvation is a woman and a prostitute, another woman. Meaning these people have absolutely no uh, currency in terms of social order within Judaism at all. And if you're trying to write a document to convince others about the validity of Jesus Christ, you definitely would not use women in that ancient world context to somehow give credence to your story. So why would they do that? Well, two reasons. One is because it actually happened. This is exactly how the story is being described. Number two, be that God actually cares about all these people. The Roman soldier who's, you know, battle bruised. Uh, the slave girl that nobody even really knows her name or that nobody even really cares about. And also the woman of great significance and power and strength and whatnot. That God actually cares about all these people no matter how radically diverse they are. Now, simultaneously, even though the gospel is radically inclusive, it's also radically exclusive. It's one of the most radically inclusive exclusive religions in the world. And in fact, I would even go so far as to say that Christianity is probably more inclusive than any other religion on the planet. Welcoming anybody, it doesn't matter what gender, what background, what social order, uh, what race you come from, it welcomes all people. Yet it's radically exclusive because it says only through Christ can we be saved. And we'll see that really unfold throughout the passage here that we're going to read, that Jesus is the center. He is, like by definition, the door into this pathway of hope and of life. So with that being said, let's jump in, take a look at the characters in the story. We'll pick it up at verse 11, look at the story the life of Lydia. And uh, the template that i will going to follow today is we'll just read the story, let Luke, who's the author of this, uh, tell us what's going on. We'll make some comments on that, and we'll finish with a couple of little things. One, uh, which would be what, what each of these people needed, because like, each one, they're, they're different. Like, for example, every one of us in this room right now, we're all different. Uh, we have different sexes, different likes, different desires, different genders, uh, different ethnicities. Uh, we're all wired differently. We're all made differently. There are certain things that, some, uh, that appeal to some of you. There's other things that appeal to others of you where none of us are the same. So what we see that, first of all, that each one of these people needed something different. The second thing, we'll take a look at how God used the circumstances to open up their heart. So with that, let's jump in and take a look at the life of Lydia. Verse 11 says this. Setting sail from Terez, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And then from there, we went to Philippi. So if you can show that map real quick, I'll show you this real fast as we jump in. So on the very bottom of the left-hand screen, which you can't see, is Jerusalem. That's where that red line ascends from all the way up into the region of, of Ephesus. I don't know if you can read that, to Athens, and then all the way up to that big red dot where it says Philippi, Neapolis, and whatnot. And that is modern-day Greece. And uh, this is the gospel actually going forth into that particular region. So Paul the apostle, along with a guy by the name of Silas, are on what we would call the second missionary journey. Paul is going back to communicate the gospel. God opened up the doors to lead him into Greece. Paul had never taken the gospel this far before. In fact, this is actually a different missions trip than what Paul had originally intended but here Paul is now in this particular region and it goes on to say that uh, which is leading into the city of the district of Macedonia and is a Roman colony so uh, the little detail that Luke the author adds to this story is again it's, it's important to note the idea of a Roman colony which means that this is not a small redneck village like this is a really really important metropolis really significant to the ancient Roman Empire the idea of it being a colony means it's sort of a representative city. Like you can walk into a Roman colony and get all the flavor, all of the essence, all the culture, all the political reality of Rome. So that's, this is kind of like a, a Rome, here we go, this is a really bad joke, a Rome away from Rome. Is that good? I just made that on the fly. You're welcome. But it's a Rome away from Rome, right? So that's the idea. All right, let's jump back in. So anyways, what we see here, that he just simply describes it as a colony. He says, we remained in the city for some days. He says, and then on a Sabbath day, we went outside uh, the gate to the riverside where we, were su- uh, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And then we sat down and spoke to a woman who had come together. So what's Paul doing here? He goes outside of the city, uh, go finds a river. What's happening? Why is Paul doing this? Well, if you remember Paul's MO, Paul, the way that he would go into a new city, um, and the way he would preach the gospel is, is Paul actually rather than going to a city and finding the local, um, you know, the local hangouts and then do street preaching, that is not at all what Paul would do at all. Make in uh, the city of um, Athens, that's what Paul did because that's how the Athenians operated. They were really into listening to philosophers. So Paul actually is adapting to the culture. And uh, borrowing the way, the MO of the culture there. So Paul gladly goes into that region, begins to basically street evangelize, street preach. Not in every other city. Paul's MO, for the most part, was to go into a city and find a synagogue. So Paul goes into Philippi and does not find a synagogue. So initially, what does that tell us about the city? Guesses? There's no Jews there. There's nobody that, there's no part of uh, Paul's background, Paul's ethnic reality uh, it's not represented there. There are no Jews. There not enough Jews to even form a synagogue. So the way in ancient culture a synagogue would typically be formed is that if there was a, an outpost of Jewish uh, a population in a particular city, they would gather together, usually if it was like above the number 11, um, they would then begin to build a synagogue. They would pull their money and figure out a way to bring together a synagogue. So there wasn't even enough people to build a synagogue in the city. So what Paul does is he does the next thing. So there's a tradition that people then go out to the uh, to a little river on the outside because most ancient cities, as you know, uh, were built by a river because they needed a source of water and this was their source of water. So they would go outside of the city. Like some of us like we're so used to like turning on the tap, but, like that's how water comes to us, but not in ancient worlds. So Paul goes out to this river, and this is probably sort of a carryover from when the Jews were actually enslaved or uh, in exile, I should say, in Babylon. Uh, there's a, a psalm where it says that by the rivers of Babylon, we went out and we remembered, we wept, we hung our harps. And this is a way of basically recognizing that uh, we are in exile. We're not home. We're, we're not in the place where we want to be. And we are basically going to a place where there's flowing water to remind us, A, that we're not home. Two, who we are. We're a community of people that are united under the name of Yahweh. And that's what we're doing. So Paul, recognized, because there's no synagogue, he goes out to the next best thing to just kind of check it out to see are there any uh, god fears or Jews that are there in that particular region. So as Paul goes out, he recognizes that there's a gal. It says uh, some information about her. Verse 14, it says, One, uh, there's, uh, there's a woman who come together, and we spoke together with her. Verse 14, uh, One who heard us was a woman. Her name is Lydia, and she was from a city called Thyatira, she was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So a couple things that we noticed about her that are really significant right off the bat that might not catch your eyes if, you know, reading this quickly. So number one, she's from a city of Thyatira, a very well-known city. Number two, she's a seller of purple. So what does that mean? Well, purple in that ancient world was a very important color. It was typically the color that was worn by royalty or rich people or the elite or the high echelon of society and culture status, it was a status symbol. So if you wore purple, that was a status symbol. It was basically communicating, I'm somebody in this culture, all right? Think very, very fancy, expensive, nice clothing. That's who this gal is. She's a seller of purple. Uh, the way, the process that they would go about to extract this color purple from, I think it was like some, from some sort of um, a snail, and it was lengthy and extensive and difficult, and uh, it's, this is what she brokered and This is what she sold, was the seller purple. So imagine, this is a very wealthy woman. She understood beauty. She, I would imagine that she was a beautiful woman herself. And she brokered her goods to wealthy, beautiful, good-looking, elite, class-level people. But she's a God-fearer. Her heart's open to God. She wants to know who God is. So imagine this is somebody that owns this. so if this is in the central uh, modern-day Central Coast, this is a lady who's done really well for herself. Uh, she owns a very high-end boutique downtown San Luis Obispo. that's who this lady is. But she's seeking God. She wants to know more about who God is. So Paul goes out there, him and Silas, and they begin to communicate to her about the gospel. So it goes on to say, and the Lord then opened her heart to pay attention. Uh, to what Paul had to say. So this is kind of interesting little insight that it's God, she's seeking, but it's God that's actually opening her heart. God's the one who's drawing her and bringing her to himself. Uh, and in verse 15, it says, and after she was baptized uh, and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And then it says, she prevailed upon us. This is kind of an interesting final phrase or sentence about this interaction with this gal Lydia. So she meets Jesus she gets baptized, and she the word that's used there in the Greek, it says she urged us to come to her house. Now, the word that's actually used to, to, to translate the word urge in English, it's a really strong, emphasized word that basically says she argued with us. She laid out her reasons why. For whatever reason, Paul was uh, dismissive of her invitation and was like, nah, I don't think we'll come over, but she urged, she she begged, she reasoned, she laid out an argument. And then Paul's like, good, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll come. Now, again, this is really significant. It might not be that significant to you. But if you're reading this from a first century context, women, for the most part, do not have a voice. Now, you can argue with that, be frustrated with that. That is what it was. That's the how things had happened, had played out. But what the Bible's telling us is that you have a guy like Paul the Apostle, who's a leader in the church, who's listening to women, that might not sound shocking to us in 21st century, but in the first century, you read that, you're like, whoa, women must be given a great level of elevation, of significance, of importance. Yes, that's exactly the case. Women are being raised. Their voice matters. Who they are has a level of significance and importance that the rest of the culture and society would just simply be dismissive of. And so much so that Paul says, uh, Luke says to Paul, that he was actually able to be convinced by the argumentation, by the convincing of Lydia to come stay in his house. So a couple things to think about before we move on to the next one. Um, what did Lydia need? Like, what were the things that were important to her? So again, if you're a high-end, alpha female, you're doing really good in your career, uh, you've made a lot of money, you constantly are working with ex- uh, very rich, powerful, good-looking, beautiful people, what speaks your language? Beauty does, right? I think Uh, beauty is important to her Um, so what she needed was some level of discussion communication explanation revelation of the beauty of christ i love this because paul goes in and he sits down with her we're talking this is a small bible study around a cup of coffee next to a river Paul and uh, Gal, and who knows how many other people are there. So what Paul's doing, this is not Paul walking in and preaching at somebody. This is Paul walking out to the river by the side of this city, sitting down, having a small group discussion, convincing, communicating this Gal about the beauty of Jesus. Now, I have no idea. It doesn't tell us what Paul's message was, but if I were to kind of think about this and allow my imagination to kind of run amok a little bit, what, what I think about, Like I wonder, like did Paul talk with her about how Jesus is a king? Jesus is royalty. Jesus is absolutely above and beyond any other form or distinction, beautiful beyond all others in this universe, and yet he allowed his beauty to be marred, and on his death, In his death, part of his death, they robed him in purple. They put on him the garments, the clothing of royalty as a form of mockery. And yet he allowed that, even though he had infinite power and worth and significance and beauty, he allowed that beauty to be brutalized and destroyed and marred beyond recognition because he loves you. Again, I, I just, again doesn't tell us at all. In my mind, I think like how somehow Paul convinced her, communicated to her about the beauty of Christ. Because this is what she broke her in. This is what was valuable to her. She saw the beauty of Jesus. Somehow, God opened her eyes. So, what we see that God used here in this context is God used teaching, instruction, personal connectedness to her to open her eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. So, again, those especially in our culture. I was reading a. Uh, an article not too long ago was actually talking about addiction. And one of the things it was describing is that a lot of our culture, especially today uh, with the advent of social media, we are in this cycle where we're constantly looking at and evaluating and assessing other people based upon how they look. You know what it is? We are a culture obsessed with beauty, but we're a culture that is more acutely aware of the disconnect between ourselves and beauty that it either drives us to insanity and despair because we're constantly flicking through our Instagram feed and looking at all these incredible displays of beauty and you are constantly going through this treadmill of despair of realizing they're beautiful, they're beautiful, they have something that I don't have and you feel this constant angst of, I don't have it, I must be ugly. Or you may be one of those few people that has been blessed with beauty and you are maybe somewhat aware of that, but you are also aware of the fact that you may lose that. Or there may be somebody else who will one-up you, who will do a better job than you, who will replace you at some point. You're well aware of the fact that at some point you're aging. And the more you age, the more this concept of beauty uh, moves and re- is removed away from our uh, everyday reality. But the fact of the matter is, is what came into her mind was that there was a beauty beyond the beauty that she brokered in. And that beauty captivated her heart. That beauty radically transformed her to the point where she says, I, I'm in, I'm gonna be baptized, I'm gonna be part of this movement. I want my life to be completely given over to the beautiful one. So next story we see is the story of a slave gal. Verses 11 through 15, it says this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owner's much gained by fortune-telling. So what's going on here? So uh, first of all, we're, we're told about this gal. Uh, she's a slave gal. Um, how did she become a slave? We don't really know, but we do know a little bit of the first century culture that it was common. Uh, most people in the Roman uh, Empire uh, were slaves. I think over 51% or so, something like that, maybe even higher than that, uh, people were in, in the ancient Roman Empire were actually slaves to so somebody. Now, some of those may have been uh, uh, more domesticated, meaning you, you owed somebody a debt, and so you were kind of a slave to them, meaning you worked for them. It wasn't like slavery that we would think about necessarily today. Uh, but this is definitely a circumstance that, that breaks from that norm. This girl somehow, something gnarly, dark, evil, wicked is actually going on here. Um, and, and, it, and perhaps the word that's actually used here to describe her slave girl uh, is a word that would indicate that she's probably a teenager, a late teenager. So imagine a 13-year-old maybe to an 18-year-old. Young gal that is enslaved by somebody that literally owns her and uses something that she does to somehow make a, a, a vast profit off of her. Um, how did she become a slave? We don't really know. Again, this is a backstory that we're not given. Um, some have suggested that, again, in that ancient culture, uh, a, a parent or parents could actually sell their child to make money because maybe there's a lot of poverty. So this is a gal, if that's the case, she knows fully what it means to be rejected, rejected by her family, rejected by everybody. She knows what it means to be used and abused and oppressed and destroyed and ruined and exploited. This is a girl that gets it. She's living that. She's in the midst of this. And on top of that, we're told that she, is, uh, she has a spirit of divination, now, this is odd. Again, it's one of those things in our modern sensibilities. We're like, what in the world's going on? The spirit of divination. The actual Greek says she has the spirit of Python. So again, if you were first century, you read this, you'd be like, ah, she's one of those. Like, so the spirit of Python, um, there was what was called the Oracle of Delphi. And uh, in the ancient world, you would go to these uh, soothsayers or um, uh, and diviners. And if you had something big that was going on in your life, you needed some help, you would basically go to the gods of the end of the world. And they would then go and kind of get some information from the spirits and the dark gods or whatever. And they would come back and they have some information. Um, there's some actual recent archeolo- archaeological digs that have kind of shown that they would go down into this little area and they've kind of discovered that there's like these gnarly deposits of some form of like gases that are coming out of the ground. So literally people are getting like gnarly stone and coming out and being able to like say, I think I have a vision of the XYZ. But whatever the case is, it couldn't be just that. Because whatever it is, uh, she is communicating things that is kind of describing the future for some of these other people, and it's so much so that uh, her, her boss, her slave owner, is actually making a lot of profit off of her. So something dark's going on here. So the spirit of Python, uh, as the original Greek is describing here, linking her to some sort of relationship with this idea of Delphi and whatnot. Here's another word to kind of throw out, that in ancient world they would have these people that would go into these trances and... Uh, crazy kind of chaotic states and they would begin to writhe on the ground and shake and go uh, th- i mean we would look at that and be like that's that's at best at best or at minimum um someone going through a psychological disorder at worst it's like exorcist going on right there like head spinning and green stuff's coming out of their mouth and something gnarly's happening here that's really really dark and evil zombie like whatever um So the idea, there's a a phrase that would use to describe people that were like this. Um, It was where we get the English word ventriloquist. Um, That's what they were called, ventriloquist, is that there would be another voice from beyond talking through them. So imagine somebody all of a sudden speaking. So this little girl talking in this deep, gnarly, baritone, booming voice. Uh, You'd be like creeped out, like something gnarly is going on with this girl. And it's exactly what was happening in that ancient world. And uh, Paul and Silas uh, are are going to the temple or going to the area to go pray. And uh, they they see the situation that's going on. So here's what it goes on to say. Then this gal with the spirit of divination, she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Verse 17, she followed Paul uh, and us. So the word that's used there for us uh, was also used earlier. This kind of shows us Luke, uh, who's the author of this book, is now part of the story. Luke kind of comes in and out of the story, but the usage of the word us uh, indicates the fact that obviously Luke's part of this whole journey now. It says that um, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation or the way of truth. So immediately you'd be like, well, isn't isn't that, that good? I mean, free publicity, right? Free, you know... <laughs> Marketing, uh, crazy psycho girl that's like throwing up weird stuff and her head's spinning and she, her voice is like going crazy. She's like, these guys love Jesus. They proclaim the way of the most high God. And Paul, like obviously in Paul's mind, it's like, ah, she's not repping as well. Like that's head spinning, you know, green vomit coming in my mouth, like weird voices coming from beyond the grave. Um, yeah, that's not so much us. Like Paul's mad now. Listen to how the story this is actually kind of funny. Verse eighteen, it says, "And she kept doing this for many days, and then Paul became greatly annoyed." So the phrase in Greek, "greatly annoyed," the word uh, that's used there in the Greek from the Greek. Uh, the, there's only one other time that that word "annoyed" or "greatly annoyed" actually uh, appears in Luke's story. It's uh, I don't know. I think Acts chapter three or four, or so something like that and it's actually used to describe the religious leaders that were having to listen to Peter and, and uh, others preach about Jesus. So the religious leaders were getting, quote, unquote, greatly annoyed. So the question is, uh, what elevation of greatly annoyed is actually going on here? All right, so what elevation of or volume of greatly annoyed was going on in the minds of the religious leaders towards Peter and Paul? Like, how annoyed were they? Was it just like one, like, ah, it's kind of a bummer. I wish they would stop. Or was it number 10, like, let's kill them? Right? So it's like number 10. Like the, Paul, it's what Luke's telling us. And this is amazing because in a sense, I, I think, and there's a lot of scholarly debate on this, but I actually think that Luke's just simply telling the story as it is. And it's, in some ways, it actually makes Paul look bad. Paul's really ticked. He's like, I am so sick and tired of this girl. I wish you would stop. Paul is so enraged and upset and frustrated over this that Paul is not demonstrating or exercising any patience whatsoever. I mean, he's really, really mad at her. Like, why would Luke do that? This has actually led a lot of people to simply point out that this is one of the reasons why we know the Bible's like, legit. Like if, like, if Luke or the New Testament was being written in such a way to somehow make the heroes of the story heroes, you would never cast them in a bad light, especially in a culture that is all about honor and shame. You would never put anything that would look someone, make someone look shameful upon them. Like ancient myths were never written this way. Not at all. So, so why is Luke doing this? Well, because it, it happened. Because Paul is not the hero of the story. Jesus is. So as it goes on, it just simply tells us that Paul is so annoyed at what's going on here. It goes on, Paul being greatly annoyed, he turned to her and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. At that very hour, it came out. So Paul speaks. He turns this gal. So uh, listen to what this gal needs. So last slide with with regard to this little situation here. What we see with this girl, she needs is powerful deliverance. That's what she needs. So she's stuck. She's trapped. She's bound. She's enslaved, not only by a physical slave owner, but also by a demonic slave power or a spiritual power that somehow controlled her, compelling her, Uh, demonstrating uh, power and and oppression over her, and she's literally bound. She's not free in any way, shape, or form. So what she needed was this power encounter. She needs something beyond her, something to leverage and fight on her behalf, something powerful and warrior-like to somehow deliver her, and give her the freedom that her soul needs. And what God used was Paul's annoyance and his boldness to deliver her. Like, Paul is mad. Now, Typically, when I read this, I think uh, the passage, I think, in James, where it says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And yes, that's true. So in other words, me getting really mad and like starting to throw down all sorts of vulgarities is not going to do a good job at, a job at repping Jesus. You, got, you understand what I'm talking about? And probably didn't do so much for Paul in this case as well. But again, God can even use the wrath of man. God can use that to somehow do what God wants to do. And that seems to be what took place in this situation that God used the wrath of Paul, Paul's anger, Paul's annoyance, uh, to somehow speak boldly to the spiritual entities that were somehow laying a hold of this gal. And it tells us that she went free. That she went free. Uh, he says, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So a couple of things I just noticed about this is that the pow- there's power in the name of Jesus. I think that's an important thing to realize, that the name of Jesus is not just some sort of incantation you throw down. Like when you need power to throw down the name of Jesus like you throw down the name of some sort of mantra. That's not the case. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is the one that sets free and liberates and saves and rescues. There's power, there's literally power in the name of Yeshua, Jesus. That He's our Savior. The, the, the whole reality of the story is that Jesus is the common denominator that it keeps going back to. He's the one that gives liberation. He's the one that gives us salvation. Paul is not throwing down like some sort of arbitrary spirituality. Just trust in the Spirit, sweetheart, everything will be fine. It's not at all what Paul's saying. He's saying there's power in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I command these demonic entities and forces to let you go. And they do. It tells us that in the very hour, the story goes on, in the very hour, uh, these, these demonic forces let go of her. And now she was under their control and being able to speak the future for her master, uh, by way of uh, being under the influence of these things, and now she's set free, and now her boss, right, slave owners, are kind of like, what happened? Like she's not the same person that we, you know, have enslaved. So they're not able to actually exercise their control and their authority and their power over her the way they had done before because she's not uh, providing the business for them and the services that she was before. So they're mad at Paul. They're like, you are affecting and destroying, uh, for all intents and purposes, our. Capitalistic affairs. We're making money through this gal, and now you guys have completely destroyed our enterprise. And they're mad. They want to kill Paul. They want to see Paul destroyed. And in the rest of the story, it says that there was this mob uh, attempt to destroy and attack Paul. And again, if you think about kind of a mob rule, uh, a couple of years ago, several years ago, I've told you guys before, but um, I, it's one of those things I could never unsee. Uh, unfortunately, I watched the, the, the mob lynching and murder and execution of Gaddafi is one of those things, like I would say never, don't even search for it because it's, it's really bad. Some of you right now are like, I'm going to search for it. Don't, like don't. It's really nasty. Like it's something I can never unsee. But it's this image of mob rule. It's this image in the streets caught live in people's camera. Like people literally going absolutely crazy, out of their mind, chaos was ruling in that circumstance to the point where they end up killing Gaddafi in the street. That's exactly what's happening in the story, that Paul and Silas are literally at the hands of this angry mob that's trying to kill them. And then they sort of get rescued from a Roman soldier. Um, Again, the way that Rome works is they don't want chaos. If there's going to be violence and bloodshed, they want it to be at the hands of Roman soldiers, not the hands of the mobs. So this is what we see within the story. Now this leads us to the last uh, 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 character in the story which is the soldier so we see in the soldier so first of all in the gal we see that lydia she needed beauty she needed to have uh some level of co- not co- you know uh, convincing to be able to see the beauty and compelling nature and beauty of christ and paul sits down with her and opens up and expounds to her a revelation of jesus for the slave girl, she needs a power encounter. She needs to be radically delivered. Even even though uh, Paul is, is aggravated and agitated and he speaks boldly to her, God uses that to somehow deliver her. And now thirdly, we see with the soldier. So if the slave girl, or uh, I should say, if Lydia is like a, an alpha female owning a very, very expensive high-end boutique downtown San Luis Obispo, the slave girl is like a street walker living in a dark place in Santa Maria, literally living her life as a prostitute, running from the law, uh, maybe as a foreigner, someone who is an undocumented worker, but looking for ways to make money, is broken, is bound, is tormented soul, and in deep need of ease of, of help and of deliverance. Uh, the soldier would be somebody who 's come back from the iraq war he 's powerful, he knows how to fight he 's had images in his mind, PTSD is something that just Part of his life, he imagines uh, horrible images in his mind. He's a guy that's, that's uh, hardened by way of war and bloodshed and violence. And this is the guy that we see with play into the final character of the story. In verse uh, 23, I'll just read it, make some comments and wrap it up. It says, they threw him into prison. That's Paul. It says, they threw, him in, uh, when they threw them into prison, Paul and Silas, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So and this is where the soldier, the jailer comes in says, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and they fastened their feet in stocks. So let's pause right there and think about the idea of stocks. So in your mind, if right now when you think about stocks, you think about, you know, Frontier Land and Disneyland, like putting your hands through those little stocks and like take a little selfie and. Laugh and you're with your friend and whatnot. Don't think that. Think stocks in terms of ancient Roman Empire where they would oftentimes strap one hand and one hand and your legs and they would kind of spread them as far apart as can. And oftentimes in that it was intended to not only hum- humiliate you but to remove any possibility of you being able to move or operate or walk or take care of yourself or scratch an itch. Um, and oftentimes people's uh, uh, legs or arms or extremities would become dislocated out of joint. It was extremely painful, and this is exactly what would have happened to Paul and Silas. And so they were put in these stocks, and uh, it says at midnight. Just, just listen carefully. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisons and the prisoners they were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, and that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had all escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Verse 29 says, and then the jailer called uh, for lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And when he had brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in your household. It says, verse 32, and then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were with, were in his house and he took them that very same night and the soldier who once had fastened them in these stocks and had once brutalized them, uh, he now is found washing their wounds and he was baptized at once. He and all of his family And he brought them into the house and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with their entire household that they had all believed in God. So what we see within the story is kind of one of those fascinating, amazing stories. We'll actually look more at this story next week. But what I want you to think about, so here's Paul and Silas literally being brutalized, being attacked, their bodies physically broken. I would imagine at the moment when that earthquake happened, at the moment when the bonds were set free and somehow miraculously broken, open there there was this image in their mind they're like we can run and we can be free we can literally save ourselves and the soldier his job his main job his only job was to protect and secure the prisoners so if you lose those prisoners again we're talking this is an honor shame culture that if you lose your prisoners if you somehow fail to do your job that means that you didn't just fail it doesn't mean you just go out and get a new job. It means that you have literally shamed your higher-ups. You shamed the very nation that you were supposed to, to, to represent. You've shamed. You've failed it. Now, the only thing that, that's, that's left for you to do is to somehow die a death that is full of valor. So that's what he's about to do. He's about to literally commit suicide as a way of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die uh, a, a death that's full of honor. And Paul and Barnabas they call out in the middle of the darkness and like, hey, we're not, we we did not run away, we're here. This is an incredible act of kindness, what Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas were doing. So h- listen to a couple of things I think about this, and I'll wrap this up. Number one, uh, what did this guy need? So again, this is a soldier, this is a battle-worn guy. This is a guy that understands coercion by way of force and by way of uh, uh, brutalization. Uh, he was a, I think what he needed was he needed a display of strength and poise in the middle of hardship. So, if you th- again if you think about it, that's exactly what a weathered soldier values. He values the ability to uphold your sworn duty in the midst of insanity. Right? Is that what a soldier does? Their main job is to somehow keep on track no matter what is flying in your face, whether it be a bullet or some sort of torture. Your job is to go Jack Bauer and never turn back, no matter what. And that's what this guy values. And here what we see in the middle of this story, this is what God used. God used this mighty display of strength through Paul and Silas, through, number one, joy in the face of intense suffering. So again, verse 25, in the middle of the night, these guys are in stocks, like painful stocks. Their bodies are literally, have been brutalized. They just came out of a mob chaos where they were no doubt being kicked. Perhaps they've got bruised ribs, if not broken ribs. Their body are are, are literally bloodied and bruised. And here in the middle of the night, we're simply told that they began to sing worship to God. Uh, I just want you to think about that because here's Paul and Silas. They're like the, the world is literally coming against them, literally coming against them. And in the midst of this insanity, they're like, all that we have left to hold on to is, is Christ. Let's lift up our voices and worship him. Let's think about that. I mean, So much of us in modern civilization and modern church we are so oftentimes easily knocked down and we don't know how to get up. We don't know how to find our way to get up. I think honestly, looking at stories like this are ways to kind of recalibrate our understanding and to rethink about how we allow life circumstances and hardships and troubles and difficulties that are constantly pushing against us, how we can actually handle those things differently in the midst of those challenges. So what we see, first of all, is that Paul and Silas had this incredible amount of joy in the midst of intense suffering. The second thing is we see this level of gentleness, forgiveness, and kindness in the face of violence and brutality. So this soldier, he's giving out violence and brutalization and, and harm and physical pain and without question some level of, of, of even mental uh, intimidation, I mean, again, you're a soldier. you got power. you got a sword in your hand. you got the entire backing of Rome behind you. You are the world's superpower, militaristic superpower. You've got the money. You've got the military. You've got the power at your disposal. You think this guy used that to intimidate Paul and Silas? Absolutely. He was rude. He was horrible. He was mean. He was cold-hearted to these guys. He was brutal to these guys. And Paul and Silas, they could have left. Now, again, if you were in their situation and you were in that place where you're like we can leave now you and i probably for the most part would just be out of there but for whatever reason paul and silas they're compelled to stay and this staying in the midst of feeling that they can run sent this message to this soldier of kindness of forgiveness of gentleness so here's the thing true strength true strength is not just simply retaliating, vengeance for vengeance, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, negative tweet for a negative tweet. True strength is the ability to show forth forgiveness, gentleness, humility, kindness, in the midst of brutalization. Do you understand that? I mean, the status quo, we can, anybody... With a third grade degree, anybody with the slightest bit of emotion, anybody who runs a country can somehow join the team of constant treadmill of just throwing out insult for insult, act bad word against bad word, bad action against bad action. But it takes a person of incredible strength to say, I'm going to stop that cycle of violence. And in its wake, in its place, show forgiveness for brutalization. Show kindness in the place of violence. Show love in the place of hatred. That message, which was not spoken, by the way, it was shown. To the servant girl, Paul speaks, uh, kind of yells. To Lydia, he sits down, has a dialogue with her. To the soldier, he says nothing. At first, he just shows the gospel in the most profound way by showing kindness when he could have left. And this is, Open the heart of this hardened soldier to listen to the message of the gospel. So, here's the stories. Three radically different, divergent, radically opposite people on an incredibly broad scheme of life, and yet God cares about all of them. There's so many things to think about here, but in short and closing, I think the message that Luke is trying to tell us by way of the Holy Spirit, that God cares about all of the strata of society. There's nobody that God overlooks. There's nobody that is insignificant to God. There's nobody, no matter what type of person you are, no matter what types of circumstances have happened to you, no matter what type of violence or brokenness or victimization you have endured or what type of victimizer you have been. The gospel is for all of us. We all need it. And God has ways of reaching us in diverse paths, just like we see here with the story. Now, there was this common Jewish prayer um, in, throughout the history of the Jewish people. And there's some debate as to like, where it came from and exactly what was actually being said. There's all sorts of websites devoted to like, trying to debate, like, what does this really mean? But this is the prayer nonetheless. The prayer went something like this. It was actually a blessing. Uh, a pronouncement of a blessing. And the blessing went something like this. Blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has not made me, dot, dot, dot. And then it goes on. You have not made me a Gentile. Thank you, blessed O God, king of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Thank you, God, who has not made me a woman. So in short, the prayer went something like this. Thank you, God, that you didn't make me a uh, a gentile, a slave. Or a woman. These are three people, three categories that for the most part have been ostracized and shoved off into the margins or not thought about or not given special interest to. And what we see finally, Paul the Apostle would later on in the book of Galatians write something like this in chapter 3, verse 28. He says, there is in Christ neither Jew nor Gentile, no slave nor free, nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ. What Paul is literally saying there that all of these forms of distinctiveness All these layers of strata that culture and society are constantly asking us, which one are you? Which one do you associate with? Which one do you find yourself in the middle of? Uh, What color is your skin? What is your background? What nation are you from? So on and so forth. What Paul is basically saying that in Jesus, we have all been shown the same level of favor and acceptance and love and kindness because we have a king that in the midst of his incredible beauty was willing to allow his beauty to be stripped. He he allowed his beauty to be brutalized and victimized. Jesus himself allowed himself to be crushed and oppressed and destroyed so that you and I, who oftentimes bear the scars of victimization, of brutalization, of violence, of brokenness, of our own sin that we've committed and rebellion against God and the sins of others that have been committed against us that have left us fragile and broken and ruined and prone towards death. We have a God that comes and says, I will exchange your death for my life by taking upon myself your death in exchange giving you my life. This is the God that we have. This is the good news that Paul was going around preaching. So I don't know where you're at, what types of circumstances your life brings you in here, what type of story is your backstory, but the fact is we all need Jesus Jesus is the one that if we turn to, will give us life. He doesn't promise to make our lives without any challenges or difficulties or hardships, but he promises to be our God in the midst of those challenges. He promises to never, ever forsake us or to turn his back on us, but always to accept us and to carry us so that in the midst of incredible chaos and hardships and difficulties, as we turn and we trust in him, our lives continue to retell the story of a God that has done the same thing for us. So, Christianity is always about this invitation to trust God. So, as we finish, why don't we all stand and let's respond and think about ways in which God may be calling us to trust Him? What are the circumstances in your life? What are the things that you're believing right now that you're holding to about God that are actually faulty? They're caricatures. They're not the real definition of who God is. Maybe the idea, the portrayal that you have of God in your mind is as what I've commonly described as this angry landlord that's eager and looking for opportunities and ways to evict you onto the street because you are literally a squatter in his hood. Or you think of God as this angry grandpa. My hope today is that you would see the very opposite. That he actually is a God that seeks after us. No matter how far we are, no matter how far we've drifted, that no matter what types of circumstances our hearts have been subjected to, no matter what types of circumstances you have subjected others to by way of your sin and your misgivings and your bad actions and evil deeds, that we have a God that offers healing, forgiveness, and transformation. My encouragement is to turn, to trust this God, to open your heart to Him, to ask Him, to do business with God right now. So, I'm going to pray. We'll partake of communion, sing, respond. God, thank you. As we turn to you, God, reshape our understanding of who you are. Turn us from people that are quick to doubt, full of cynicism, Mm -hmm. to become people that lay hold of you, trust you, and are shaped by you.